Thanks to our sponsor, Malloy Law Offices. They are a personal injury law firm here in the local D.C. area that helps others recover from car accidents, work injuries, slip and fall injuries, and other types of accidents. They work on what's called a contingency fee basis. So if you hire Malloy Law Offices after an accident, then you never pay anything out of pocket. They also offer educational content and free consultations for those who have more questions than answers, like us at DC by Foot. We're really excited to partner with them next month to learn all about personal liability as a tour guide in Washington, DC. Visit their website at malloy-law.com or call their offices at 202-335-6141. Malloy Law Offices is open 24-7, so don't hesitate to get the right legal help you need after a personal injury accident. and welcome to Tour Guide Tell All. We're friendly neighborhood tour guides here to share with you the hidden little bits of history that you might not notice uh, exploring DC on your own. We are here with another fresh spring podcast episode, getting uh, excited for nicer weather and a chance to be out more on tour. But before we jump in, as always, I'm Becca. I'm Rebecca. And together we are the Rebecca's. Um, we are here. It is spring. It is um, a great time for us. The city starting to really come to life. It's busy. We certainly encourage you to come out on a tour with us. Trust me, you want to come with us because otherwise the city's starting to be just run amok by school tours and student groups. So if you stick with us, we can help you navigate that a little bit. Uh, we want to, as always, shout out our patrons. Our patrons are amazing and beautiful and smart and funny, and they keep the lights on and they keep the podcast going. I had a chance to meet one of our patrons on a tour um, just a little while ago. Neelam, thank you so much for coming out, supporting local tour companies and being a patron. We love our patrons at all levels. And if you're a patron, make sure you're checking out your special patron-only episodes. And if there's anything you'd like to see as a patron benefit or a patron topic, just shoot us an email. But I am really excited. I think kind of in the spirit of spring tour season and you know, tourists coming back to the city, we're talking about probably one of the biggest tourist attractions in Washington, D.C. It's also a very important seat of our government. But I think for a lot of visitors, if you're checking off like the two or three things you're going to see while you're here, must see bucket list, you're talking about the U.S. Capitol building. And so we're going to dig in and talk about the U.S. Capitol building, not from a political perspective. We've done um, episodes on government. We've talked about the legislature. We've talked about individuals in Congress. Rebecca, how are we sort of tackling the Capitol today? So we're going to talk about some art, friends. We're going to talk about Capitol art. We're talking about the and art. Um, we are deliberately trying to be a little timely here. There has been several issues. We're going to talk about some controversies later on in the episode. Uh, but there was a Washington Post article not that long ago about the art in the Capitol. And to start off with, like, the Capitol is filled with art. Like, there's a lot of it. 
In fact, the building is kind of art. It is the outside has art, the inside has art, the walls, the doors, every part of it has art on it. There are the outside has pediments and friezes, which are, you know, sculptures. Uh, there is the rotunda, which there are the dome, which is beautiful, the goddess of freedom. Going inside, there are murals and frescoes in sort of embedded in the walls. We'll talk a little bit about the Brumidi corridors, which are on the Senate side. There's these very ornate and lovely decorative corridors. So art is everywhere in the United States Capitol. The building itself is filled with art, hundreds of pieces of sculpture and paintings and murals and the whole thing. Like it's, it's everywhere, man. The Washington Post article quoted like 1400 pieces of art, and that doesn't seem to even include the actual building itself. So there's a, there's a lot of decoration uh, in the United States Capitol. And it's a beautiful place. A lot of the art is exactly kind of what you'd expect. Very patriotic, sort of celebrating the United States and our history and the, the greatness that is our democracy uh, and sort of visualizing that or making that in a visual way, uh, the greatness of this country. Um, it can tend towards a little bit of the, like it, it, you get a little hit over the head uh, if you've been there enough times, um, it gets a little repetitive. But in the normal course of, touring season. Becca and I are around and in the Capitol at least twice, if not three or four times a week. Uh, <laughs> and so there's, we're all right. Like, I'm not exaggerating that. No, like even in the winter, I'm probably on Capitol Hill inside or outside at least three times. And then when we're into the spring, it's probably closer, frankly, for you or I, four or five days a week. I mean, you know, we don't work at the Capitol, but we work at the Capitol a lot. Right. And we get to know some of the people are like, peace. What's up, guys? We know you. So as tour guides, we're not always inside the Lake Rotunda. We don't go on the public tour as often because that's a lot. And it would be just, we'd be doing it really a couple of times a week. But having been in the Capitol many, many times, it is all but overwhelming just how really lovely it is and how filled with art it is. And I'm, I'll just jump on my liberal arts education soapbox for a minute. I was an American culture major. So I studied American history, but also really studied it in the context of art, literature, music, film. And I think it's important to note that art matters. Artwork tells a story. Artwork is very often not an objective reflection of factual events. It is a story. It's a narrative. It's there to promote ideals. It's there to retell and reframe often the way in which a series of events happened. And that's especially true when we're talking about art in public spaces and when we're talking about art in a public place like the United States Capitol building. So it is impossible to simply walk into the Capitol and go, oh, that's a mural of the signing of the Declaration. That's a statue of George Washington. The way in which every single piece of artwork that is displayed in the Capitol building was created, who painted it, who sculpted it, what time era of art history was it created, who was funding it. Some of these pieces are chosen and funded by the federal government. Some are done by states, some are done individually. We're going to break that down a little bit through the episode. 
all of those little pieces really matter. And I really want to give a shout out to the Capitol tour guides, the Redcoats, as they're often known. Uh, I think that in particularly the last few years, they've done such a great job really contextualizing the artwork as you go through. So keep in mind, and none of this is being created in a vacuum, uh, and that there are some really powerful stories being told. And some of these stories are great and beautiful and uh, I think represent the best of America. Some of the narrative and stories that are being represented in this art reflect a much grimmer reality of our past and of what we valued at particular times in our history. And I think it's just important to sort of kind of wrap our heads around that and have that mind frame as we continue through this episode. Because it isn't just, hey, there are some statues of these cool people or here's some cool frescoes. There are some very real stories trying to be told here and not all of them reflect the best of us. And it's also, I think, like, you, if you take a capital tour as a, as a member of the public, it's between 50 minutes and an hour, depending on the guide that you get and how crowded it is and stuff like that. And so what you're showing to the general public in a 50-minute tour is a choice. What is important to emphasize, what statues are easiest to see, what you're going to specify and talk about. We're telling the story of who we are, what our values are, what we think our history should reflect. And that's in a 50 minute tour is going to be real. There are very specific things that you see because you can't see all of the capital. It would take you days to really see it all. And so specific choices are being made about what part of our history is being reflected and what we're sharing with the public. So these are all choices that are being made in very specific ways, particularly for a building that's as public as the Capitol is, that's as reflective of our history as the Capitol is. What are we showing to the public? What are the values that are being reflected here? It's not just art. It is contextualized, historicized, art in a public setting uh, as far as sort of how we're presenting our history and our capital to the world. So I think that that's to sort of borrow from what Becca has said. I think that that's extremely important to sort of mention. That said, let's talk about some of our some of the cool things. I always love to talk about the goddess of freedom. She's the statue on the top of the dome. She is, as we all like to point out, by law, the tallest statue in Washington, or at least by tradition anyway. Her full name is the goddess of freedom triumphant. She's fabulous. She's made entirely out of bronze. And they have, it's hard to see her because she's on the top of the dome of the Capitol. And, you know, you can't really kind of get up there to check her out. But luckily for all of us, they have the mold that they used to make her, to cast her in bronze. They have that in the Capitol Visitor Center. So anybody who goes through to take a Capitol tour is going to see her. And it is the exact scale. It's exactly what she looked like. And... Pro tip, if you're ever down there, check out her eyes. They're my favorite part. Like she's surrounded. She's got, you know, uh, laurel wreath, which means victory. She's got all kinds of symbolic, symbolic things in her. But her eyes, like she's meant to be on the top of the Capitol Dome. So she's supposed to be like gazing out into our bright and distant future. But the effect of that, when you get real close to her, she looks really confused and very <laughs> like completely freaked out to see you. Oh, like, oh, I didn't see you there. It's amazing. That's my little pro tip. But I always like to talk about the goddess of freedom um, because she's great. She is great. Um, I love, and I know we're going to touch on this later, but the portrait monument, that's probably one of my favorite things in the Capitol building. It is on the Capitol tour. So you have to be on the Capitol tour in the rotunda 
to see it, but it represents three of our sort of important early leaders in the women's movement, Elizabeth Cady Stanton, Lucretia Mott, and Susan B. Anthony. We've talked about Adelaide Johnson, the sculptor on this podcast uh, way back in the early days. Um, she has a fascinating story. And I love it primarily because there's sort of these three very famous historical women. And then there's sort of this unfinished lump in the back. And it's meant to represent a future woman, right? Somebody, the next in this kind of tradition. And I love that. There's not a lot inside the Capitol that I think speaks to the future. And that's one of the pieces that kind of does. So I really like the portrait monument. And that's when I get, I try to get people excited about seeing. Um, I also too, I love freedom. I actually like on the east uh, center pediment, there's the genius of America, which is a trio of allegorical figures. We love allegory at the Capitol. And uh, it just sort of cracks me up, like the lack of humility there that we're just like the genius of America. And um, it's three female allegorical figures. One is America and she has a bald eagle next to her that if this were to scale, this bald eagle would be like four feet tall, three and a half feet. It's just ginormous. It's the biggest bald eagle you would ever see it's like a condor um so that is one i always really love to point out and we'll drop some links in the show notes to the capitol building art collection so you can see some of these visually but it's fun to sort of point out all the little symbols and um, all the little things that the artists put in to help sort of reflect these ideals but those are kind of my two my two favorites portrait monument and then the genius of america which cracks international visitors up <laughs> Oh yeah, I love. I always point that out because she, America, is staring at the the allegorical representation of genius because we're all about modesty. Yeah, around here, like very modest. <laughs> uh, the apotheosis of Washington is another really sort of famous. This is inside the painting that's inside the dome of the Capitol. So right at the very top, when you're standing in the rotunda, if you look all the way up, you will see the apotheosis. It's basically Washington in glory, uh, and he's surrounded by different muses. And and basically, it's supposed to represent how awesome Washington was. Uh, and then the rotunda itself is surrounded by eight large, like enormously large scale murals of different events in American history. And those have been coming under a little bit of fire recently, sort of glorifying some things that perhaps maybe not so interested in glorifying. It's telling a very specific narrative about American history. And that narrative does not include any women, like no women at all. Like Pocahontas, I think, is portrayed. And that's really it, I think. And so a lot of the guides, who I got to give another shout out, Becca already did this, but they're really worth shouting out. They have taken it upon themselves to really talk about how we should make these a little bit more include, like this should be a little more inclusive of not only inclusive of who was actually involved in the founding of this country, but also like maybe take a real reality check about, are we really interested in glorifying these tall, some of them are mythologized versions of American history. So I always like to mention that. Yeah. Um, if you have ever been inside the Capitol building and you've been in the rotunda under the dome and you look up, it's Washington, I mean, almost deified that that painting. It really cracks me up a little bit when you think about how much 
Washington, for all its complexities, really tried to make sure the presidency wasn't an exalted position, that they weren't treated like a king, that they weren't glorified beyond the scope of the Constitution. And there we have him floating in heaven, surrounded by liberty and victory. And then these 13 maidens representing the original 13 colonies. And they're all like dancing and floating around in the clouds. And it's just like, it's so different than if you go to like Mount Vernon and you really dig into how Washington approached the presidency, how he approached, how he wanted to be remembered, the very modest tomb he designs for himself. And then you look at this fresco that Bermidi painted in 1865 and it's just, just even, you know, a little less than, you know, 70 years later, how much the way that we're framing Washington has changed. Uh, and I just find that really fascinating. And it's a good compare contrast if you spend some time at Mount Vernon and then see this painting and just think a little bit about how maybe a historical figure wanted to be remembered and how they end up being remembered. That's a good, yeah. And the, the rotunda, it's impossible to really describe fully how big the rotunda is unless you've seen it. There are around the edges, eight massive large scale murals. There are probably over a dozen statues in the room and room for at any one time six or seven different full tour groups so it is really large and so there's a lot kind of going on and, and obviously like you could spend an entire 45 to 50 minute tour in the rotunda pointing out all the cool and interesting things that are in, or in the rotunda of the capital and so again there's a lot to move through as you're seeing even just the public areas of the capital the other thing i kind of want to leave shout out is Constantine Brumidi and his corridors uh, on the Senate side which you need a special pass to get to see like you need a Senate gallery pass um, he is going to design literally corridors they're literally walkways and they are beautiful they're very lovely and well done he was tasked to make this area of the capital look like Raphael's loggia in the Vatican. So it's that level of artistic detail. There are vaulted ceilings and frescoes. He's got little symbols of American life. For example, sheaves of wheat and things to do with all the different industry that we were promoting at the time. So all over the place in Bermidi's corridors are allegories of history and really lovely designs everywhere. They are, I think, also one of my favorite things to see, although, again, you either need a Senate gallery pass or if you're fortunate enough to get a tour through one of your senator's offices, typically you can get someone to take you over there. But there are five of these corridors. They're quite long, most of them. And it's kind of funny to me because they're like, he's an exceptionally talented artist. Bermidi uh, is responsible for a lot of wonderful art in the U.S. Capitol building. But this is on the Senate side. The Senate in the 19th century is, you know, considers itself a very important part of our government. It's really the driving force of our nation moving forward. And so they gave him reference materials, things like the Pacific Railroad Report and the Senate Committee on the Revision of Laws was going to have a room. So they wanted something that might actually speak to their authority to consult the law. There was something that the Senate Committee on Indian Affairs wanted painted. So these different committees were actually giving him documents, reports, old legislation, and being like, all right, work this into your artwork. So it's kind of fascinating because he is a brilliantly classically trained artist. And then he's being given these like really dense 
19th century bits of legislature and reports and these uh you know I, all i assume guys in suits with beards at this time are like yeah 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 yeah, yeah. can you uh, like work my committee's legislation into this allegory cool thanks so it's really fascinating because as you walk through sometimes you're like why are there like so much railroad stuff well it's because the railroad committee was like you've got to paint our report on the wall yeah it's really it's such a great time capsule um and, and it's all beautifully rendered he does an incredible job creating these images but he is having a pretty heavy thumb on the scale in terms of what he's yes. supposed to paint Yes, it's really interesting. And the, so the art itself on this, the walls itself on the Senate side are art. The House side is a little bit different. It's sort of in the same style, but the house goes more for quotes. So above every single doorway on the House side, the house wing, you'll find a different quote and not just members of the House or Senate, presidents, Supreme Court justices, different things about our democracy and our, our legal traditions and things like that. And they're, they're everywhere. So it's a bunch of different quotes all throughout the House side. So that's a big part of what goes on on the House side. Now, what we specifically wanted to drill down a little bit are statues. There are a lot of statues in the Capitol, including busts of all early Supreme Court chief justices, including, if you listen to a few months ago to our talk about Dred Scott, Supreme Court Chief Justice Roger Taney has a bust that is possibly getting removed. Unclear, we're not sure where Hard to say now Hard where we're say. at. Hey, we don't know. There are also um, busts of, there's a vice presidential bus collection. Uh, as you know, listening to past episodes, the vice president is the president of the Senate. And so the vice president is well represented by bus. So there's a number of vice uh, price whoa, that's hard to say, vice presidential busts as well. So you've got kind of these SCOTUS justices, you've got these VPs. These are not part of what we typically refer to as the National Statuary Collection. But then Congress also likes to commission lots and lots of statues specific to telling various aspects of our nation's story. So there are essentially two main types of capital statues. The capital statues that are commissioned by Congress or the American people, uh, there aren't as many of these. These are gonna be commissioned by an act of Congress, they're voted on by Congress, and they are gonna be of larger figures, that sort of towering figures in American history that should be represented in the Capitol in some place. So for example, Sojourner Truth, Rosa Parks, Martin Luther King Jr., the bust the suffrage monument that Becca already mentioned, those are going to be capital statuary. They are not given by a state. Well, and I'll just jump in with a, a slight bit of note. It's actually the suffrage, the portrait monument was actually a gift. It was a gift from the National Women's Party. Congress did not commission it or pay for it. In fact, they gifted it, National Women's Party gifted it right after the 19th Amendment's ratified. So it's like, hey, here. Now women have gotten the vote. Let's put the statue in. They have this nice big ceremony. Everybody takes lots and lots of pictures. And then the men at the Capitol building put it in storage for the next like 80 years. And it wasn't until the 1990s that it was put back on permanent display. But that was actually a gift. So it's similar, I think, in this category. But I just wanna note that Congress in the early 20th century was not paying for a statue to honor suffragists. So that's my surly little note there. <laughs> and then they hit it. <laughs> so the second type of statue are the state statues, the official National Statuary Hall collection. This was authorized by an act of Congress in 1864. So in the, we're in the midst of the Civil War. 
and you can see immediately the impetus. You want sort of a unity moment. Encourage states to donate something to the Capitol, have all states represented in the nation's capital. You can very easily see the impetus for this. Let me also just jump in and say, for those who may not have been on a Capitol tour with us, is that the Capitol had been recently expanded. The Capitol had undergone a massive expansion uh, in the 1850s that continues on into the 1860s with the completion of the dome. And so now the building's a lot bigger. And so, you know, Congress is kind of looking around and going, okay, we got a lot of like space. We've got this now like more room. We've moved these, we've moved the chambers into these new wings. What are we going to fill this space with? We're in the middle of this expensive war. We don't want to pay for artwork. Why don't we get the states to do it? So I think it's kind of great because I think it's absolutely a unity moment. It's we want to kind of show that we're one United States, but also wouldn't it be great if we didn't have to pay to decorate our newly expanded Capitol building? We've already paid money for these paintings and frescoes. Uh, somebody else can and pay for the statues. So it's kind of a win-win from Congress's perspective. <laughs> right, exactly. Originally, they are all, the idea was we're going to keep all these statues in the in Statuary Hall. Statuary Hall is still there and you will see it on your Capitol tour. It used to be the House Chamber. So that used to be where the House voted back in the day, back in the original part of the Capitol. It is, the House now has its own chamber. When they did the redesign in the 1850s, they're going to establish the current House Chamber. So Statuary Hall is going to be the original repository of all of these statues. However, by 1933, this is going to get a little bit crowded. By the 1930s, we've got 48 states, and each one of them is encouraged to send two. Now, not all of them do at the same time. The statues come in in dribs and drabs, but by 1933, we're getting a little crowded in Statuary Hall. And so what they decide is, for a while, one statue from each state will be in Statuary Hall, and the other will be somewhere else on the Capitol complex. Then... <laughs> that gets too crowded. So today, there are 35 statues in Statuary Hall. One statue from each of the original 13 colonies is below it in the crypt, and the rest are kind of scattered throughout the Capitol complex. Some of them are very easily on public view. Some of them are less easily on public view, but they all are somewhere uh, in the Capitol. And the Capitol keeps an accounting of where they are and upkeeps them and the whole thing. Now, there are a few rules here. Indeed. <laughs> the rules the Capitol has decided that they do not get a say in who is represented. That is up to the states. It is not up to people. They don't want individual people sending statues. The state itself, so North Carolina or California or Wyoming, they in their state legislature get to decide what two statues they want to send to the United States Capitol. Who best reflects their state, its values, its history, its culture, who maybe someone who is famous or someone who is not that famous from their state, someone that is perhaps not as well known that they want to highlight. So it's up to the states. The only two rules, each state gets two and only two, does it. The statue has to be made of either marble or bronze. So the Capitol is very clear about the material. It can't be anything other than marble or bronze. There is one sort of exception to that. Colorado statue, Jack Swigert, is not entirely, he was an astronaut. And so part of his statue is his astronaut uniform, kind of. It's not entirely made of bronze. And the other big rule is the person being depicted 
must be deceased. So no living people. So let me just jump in for a second, because I think that it's pr- it's really quite broad. The state legislatures can pick anybody from their state history who is dead, and they can basically spend as little or as much as they want on this. They determine the cost of it as long as they're staying within that material kind of guideline. So marble bronze. But if you have spent some time the Capitol walked around, there's quite a bit of range in terms of the scale, the size, the artistry, the detail, the amount of expense paid. So you have kind of this almost close to a blank slate that you get to choose and build from. So there's a lot of variety that comes from that. And it is sort of fun sometimes to walk through and be like, ah, here's a state that really invested and spent a lot of money. And here's a state that maybe not so much. And they don't always have to be born in that state. They don't have to die in that state. They don't have to, they, in fact, the connection to that state could be as tenuous as the state decides that it wants to be. That really is very much up to the individual states. Like for example, North Dakota, one of their statues is Sacagawea. Was she born in North Dakota? Honestly, we don't know. So who knows? But they, you know, it is up to the states who they want to have represent them. That's sort of like, I've never obviously served in a state legislature, but it is a bit of an exercise of thinking like, do you go with the most famous people from your state? Do you go with your presidents, your governors, your pop culture figures? Do you go with somebody who really made a difference on a localized state level? Um, And states have chosen kind of everything on that spectrum and everything in between. But it is sort of, you know, if you're listening to this podcast and if you don't know the two statues from your state yet, think about who you would choose from your state. Who would be your people? And for me, like, and this is a very individual choice, I would pick people who aren't perhaps as well known nationally. Like some states choose presidents that are from their state and that's fine, that's their right. I would, we're not gonna forget who our presidents were anytime (laughs) soon. Some of them we'd like to. Uh, Woodrow Wilson, but (laughs) we're not gonna. And so my instinct, and maybe this is incorrect, would be to highlight someone who's perhaps less well-known. But that's just me. That's my own personal thing. Two things are very important to point out right now. Number one, states, as of the year 2000, states can swap their statues out. So if they decide they want to change who their statue is, one or both, they can do that. The other thing that's important to note at this juncture is I understand fully that state legislatures have larger concerns. So I want to just make that blanket statement. I get it. They've got budgets and, you know, all kinds of all the things that actually impact people's lives. So with that caveat said, sometimes states make interesting choices. (laughs) I just want to mention that by 2000, many of these states had had statues in the Capitol for 100 years, 125 years, 150 years. And there's something to be said for who your state legislature might have thought was important in the 1860s or 1870s and who anyone remembers by the year 2000. Because it is a funny exercise. You know, we get guests from all across the country. We often will share with them who the statues are from their state. And you get a lot of confused looks sometimes because not everybody remembers the first guy your state sent to Congress or maybe one of the early governors or, you know, some guy who maybe started the first business in this one town. So it is, I think, a smart and wise decision that by 2000, without even starting to get into some of the controversy, which we will later, that, you know, states can swap it out because who was significant in the 19th century may not reflect who 
who a lot happens in the 20th century, a lot has happened in the 21st century. It doesn't tell the full, maybe the full picture of your state's history. So states have that right. And it makes total sense to me why you would have that, even taking aside the fact that some of these choices have over the years garnered quite a bit of controversy. But before we get to that, some fun ones, right? Yes. I got to start with our gal, Jeanette Rankin. We have mentioned her. She's been well represented on this pod. She's amazing. Uh, Jeanette Rankin is the first woman to serve the United States Congress. Uh, And she has a very lovely statue. And it does not mention, though, that she's the first woman to serve the United States Congress. What it does talk about is how she was a pacifist and voted against uh, our entry into World War I and World War II. Another one that I particularly enjoy is a guy from Florida named Edward Gorey. Edward Gorey, you've not heard of him but i guarantee you come summertime you enjoy his most famous invention he is responsible allegedly for inventing air conditioning which is very solid and i'm very excited about that norman borlaug is another one i really love he's from iowa norman borlaug if you're a big west wing nerd if you watch the tv show a lot this is a big west wing deep cut he invented something called the dwarf wheat which something about wheat bending over under its weight its own weight and is responsible he's a nobel peace prize recipient he's responsible they say for a billion lives like he really reinvented modern agriculture so he's really interesting and kind of fascinating Becca, what do you got? What's your What are your favorites? One that I always point out, especially if I have kids or students on my tour, is one of the statues from Utah that's in the Capitol Visitor Center. It's Philo Farnsworth. He's the father of television. He invented basically, and you know, I'm not, I don't understand engineering. He invented an early electronic television system. It basically allowed him to transmit one of the first electronic television pictures. This is back in the 1920s. He patented over 150 patents related primarily to the use of radar, the use of telescoping, the use of of television. It's kind of amazing. He also apparently was one of the early inventors of what was an incubator for babies. And it was like an early model of what we often see today and like Nick used. So a really cool inventor. He's he's a great example of maybe not the first name that would come to you from Utah, but I'm so glad he has a statue because I wouldn't know about him otherwise. And I think it's just really neat to be able to say, hey, guys, like that's one of the people who gave us television. I love television. Uh, One of my favorite others in the statuary collection is somebody we've talked about on the podcast. And that's uh, William Bora. William Edgar (laughs) Bora is a statue from Idaho. If you remember our very, very, very first episode on Alice Roosevelt Longworth, Senator Bora came up uh, in that podcast because of his very intimate relationship with Alice. I like him actually because he's just dressed really kind of dapperly. Um, he's just got that great early 20th century suit on. He looks real sharp. He's got the very like 1920s middle parted hair. I just think he looks like he looks like the kind of guy I can see Alice Roosevelt Longworth, you know, skulking around the Senate side of Capitol Hill waiting to spend time with. Um, he was also, you know, really involved in the in the New Deal. He was known for being a really eloquent speaker. So I like that because, like, I see him and it's kind of a cool statue. But then also I know a little bit about his uh, extracurriculars. So that's a fave for me. Yay. Um, so uh, that's those are some of the fun ones. And there are other fun ones, but um, I, and now we're going to talk about all the controversies, all of the controversies. My, my first big controversy is that D.C. only gets one. And I should note, it's actually technically not part of the National Statuary Hall collection. Yes. 
which is relevant to DC statehood. Um, but yeah, DC yes. only gets one statue, and the territories get none. Uh, and that's worth no, noting. There's no statue one. for the American territories at this current time, at the time of recording this podcast. Right. Which sucks. Because they're part of American America, too. They're uh, citizens or American citizens. They should have some kind of representation in their capital where the laws are made, which is important. Of lesser concern than some of the later uh, controversies we'll get into, but I always like to mention, I take a little bit of issues with some of the northern states. Like some of your original 13 colony type of states, if you go by who they send to the capital, you might assume that all history was done by men and only the only history that's important was done by men who have been dead for more than 200 years and there's more than old just old dead white folks friends um i'm looking at you specifically connecticut and new york for example new york their two statues are robert livingston who's legit he signed many of our founding documents he was buddies with george washington he was kind of a cool guy and george clinton who did something not from parliament funk no, not from Parliament Funk, no. Sadly. Semi-legit. But both of those two men died before 1815. And like, I don't know, New York's had some history since then. Connecticut has Roger Sherman, who's legit. Roger Sherman helped draft the Declaration of Independence. Roger Sherman signed the Articles of Confederation and the Constitution. He's pretty legit. The other person that Connecticut has is Jonathan Trumbull. So who the heck is that? First of all, if you're around the Capitol, you may think the name John Trumbull comes up around the Capitol quite a bit. He's one of the artists that does a lot of the murals, but it's not that John Trumbull. Which I actually had it, to confirm because I was like, is it the artist John Trumbull? It's not. It's <laughs> not the artist John Trumbull. Jonathan Trumbull was a governor of Connecticut during the Revolutionary Period. He was a patriot. He was a minister. He found, There's a town in Connecticut called Trumbull. But basically, like, I'm from Connecticut and fairly well-versed in American history. And I was like, who? So I would like to just say suggest kindly to New York and Connecticut, New York, you have the first African-American woman to serve in the United States Congress, Shirley Chisholm. Put a statue of her up, maybe. Connecticut, you have the first woman to elected governor of a U.S. state in her own right, Ella Grasso. Put her a statue up. Just a humble suggestion from a citizen, from, a, from a, a, an American citizen. Um, and this sort of leans into the next controversy I want to mention. There's a lack of diversity like a shocking lack of diversity amongst the statues at present. Yeah. <laughs> at present, there are only 11 women. Only 11. And frankly, if we had recorded this or if you've listened to a podcast since before summer of 2022, we would have said there was only nine. So we have increased by two in the last six months. So that's a pretty big jump percentage wise. But still, with that swapping of statues, we're still only at 11, even with a few statues in the in the pipeline to come in, we at best will top out at about 15 or 16 currently. So 50% of the population, not even 15% of the statuary collection. And they put six of these women statues in the Capitol Visitor Center, which is where the majority of the public files through to take a public tour. So it makes you feel like it's more diverse than it is which I hate. There's only one African-American statue given by a state. Out of a hundred guys, out of a hundred. 
And this is put up in the last six months. So if we were recording this podcast last year at this time, there would be zero. Which drives me insane. So um, for those curious, it's Mary McLeod Bethune. Um, so prior to the installation of her statue, there was not a single Black American represented from a state in the state's collection. That is jarring to me, deeply, deeply so. I'm not surprised. It's just jarring. Um, it's problematic, to say yeah. the least. Yep, yep, yep. I hate it. But the biggest controversy, and this has caused a lot, a lot of ink has been spilled about this recently. There are a number of enslavers and confederates and or confederates represented in the nation's capital. One of the big ones that gets bandied about all the time is Alexander Hamilton Stevens from Georgia. Stevens was a longtime congressman who, when Georgia seceded from the Union, is going to become the vice president of the Confederacy after four years of war. He's actually elected back to the Congress when Georgia readmits into the Union, basically from his old congressional seat as if nothing had happened. And they have a statue of him. They have sent a statue of him and have not removed it. And he betrayed his country, and I don't think he should have a statue. Another is Joseph Wheeler from Alabama. Joseph Wheeler is actually buried at Arlington National Cemetery. He's one of two Confederate generals to be so honored at Arlington. But again, he was a general for the Confederate Army. So an army that took up arms against the duly elected government of the United States. Alabama chooses to send that person to represent them on the national stage in the Capitol. I know, it gets worse and worse. George's other statue, FYI, is not too much better. It's an early obstetrician, and he is credited with inventing something about uh, anesthesia. His name is Crawford Long, uh, but he did it experimenting on enslaved women who could not protest. He is not even the only statue of somebody in the Capitol who was a doctor who experimented on enslaved Black women. That is also true of Ephraim McDowell, who is there from Kentucky. So that's two that we can list who have very openly in the public record this as part of what they did in their career, which to me feels like it should be disqualifying. But, you know, I'm not in a I state agree. legislature. I agree. And also, even if these weren't traitors and enslavers and abusers, they've also been dead for more than 100 years. And surely Georgia has people in the last century, like John Lewis, who should have a statue. I'm just saying. Uh, there's a guy named Zebulon Vance from North Carolina. He was a Confederate, uh, pretty active in the Confederate Army. But the biggest one, the one that makes my head melt, like bad Janet from The Good Place, is Jefferson Davis. Jefferson Davis from Mississippi. Jefferson Davis, you may be aware, was the president of the Confederacy during the Civil War. He was also Secretary of War. He helped redesign the Capitol and was a senator from Mississippi as well. So he did a few things and then resigns to become president of the Confederacy and basically spends the rest of his life convinced that the Confederacy was the right way to go uh, and persuaded of the justice of his cause. And so he led a rebellion against the United States. And Mississippi chooses and continues to choose to keep his statue in the United States Capitol. So someone that betrayed the oath he took to defend and uphold the Constitution is represented in the Capitol. 
insane, insane, Crazy. just insane to me. Why do we have statues of traitors and enslavers? And I feel like there's a lot of call, and you'll read this in the press, that, oh, we should, the Capitol should forbid this. I don't think that's true. And this is just my opinion. If these states want to continue to tell on themselves, we should let them do that. This is their right. We have made it very clear that states get to have and be represented by whomever they have chosen. Now, should the states make better choices? Yes. Should we encourage them to make better choices? Sure. But I feel that it's vital for the collection. That's the way they set it up. If Connecticut gets to choose, it's all white dudes. And, um, you know, Mississippi should get to choose to send Jefferson Davis. But they shouldn't choose to send Jefferson Davis, is I think my point here. Like, it shouldn't be that it's barred. It should be that they, they should not want to. Right. Like the idea of this is that, again, the states are getting to tell their state's story. They get to tell, they get to frame it almost any way they want. They're given such a wide range. And yet who they choose is such a reflection of what they value, of what matters. Mm -hmm. And I think it is also a reflection of a lack of diversity across the board still reflected on the state legislature level, right? We look at who serves in a state legislature in just about any given state, right? Is it really reflecting the makeup of the United States in age, in socioeconomic background, in race and gender? Um, and those are the people then who decide who gets represented. So of course, when you look at the statuary collection, we, we have a, a appalling lack of diversity across the board. To throw in, oh, no, go ahead, please. Oh, no, go ahead. No, just please. to throw in some broad numbers, um, we'll link to this Washington Post article, but I think it really gives you a sense of the scale. In total, in the U.S. Capitol, this includes the statuary collection and pieces that Congress has commissioned and decorated. A third of the artworks in our U.S. Capitol depict enslavers or individuals from the Confederacy. That's really, really a lot. A third is huge. In terms of the state statues, we ultimately have, I believe, I'm going to make sure I have this number right before I say it out loud. I should have had it right in front of me because I don't want to say it wrong. Um, we have nine states where both of their statues are either an enslaver or a confederate, and even more so that have at least one. So that's, when you think about something like that, that represents a larger chunk of the collection than women are represented, a larger chunk than indigenous people are represented, and certainly a larger chunk than any person of color is represented. And so um, the stories that these states are telling is a telling one. I agree with you that it shouldn't be barred and that we shouldn't have a rule, but I wish there was a little bit more public pushback. I wish, and I think the truth is most people don't know, right? The average person probably doesn't know how their state statue ends up in the U.S. Capitol, but it's, it's deeply frustrating and it's really disappointing. And again, I want to emphasize there are larger problems. States have larger problems in their legislature. This is probably not a priority number one. That's fair. But also, like, think about you're sending your students to Washington to take a tour of their capital. And you have pe little kids at, who are asking who their states are. And they're told, oh, an enslaver. Oh, a traitor. And imagine how that feels to your students, imagine what story that's telling them uh, about what your state values, about who your state chooses to emphasize and what its values are. That's the sort of picture that you're painting on the national stage is of your, your values uh, to the nation. Uh, and so I think it's really worth, 
sort of having, I would be in favor of having the, the states reexamine who they're sending. Um, and, and I think of, uh, it's important to mention that most of the individuals we're talking about, individuals like Wheeler, Stevens, Davis, these statues are not sent in the 1870s or the 1880s. They're sent in the 1920s and the 1930s. Some were replacements for previous statues. And in fact, um, that timing is important. We're moving into the height of Jim Crow. We're moving into the height of that lost cause mythology. Um, in 1931, both of the statues from Mississippi were sent, including Jefferson Davis. The US Army Band was tasked with playing at the ceremony. The New York Times would describe the dedication ceremony of the Davis statue as emotional and full of loving sentiment for the lost cause. So there was a very specific political choice made, not right after the Civil War, 60, 70 years after the Civil War, to position a person like Jefferson Davis in the U.S. Capitol. And so for those for those people that sometimes think, well, you know, maybe in the 1870s it was about unity. No, most of these statues we're talking about went in well into the 20th century and went in to send a message, right? Yes. Yep. So putting that out there. They're very clearly sending a, ver a message. It's looking up though, slowly. Um, for example, currently, as of the recording of this podcast, Virginia only has one statue in the United States Capitol. They have removed a statue of Robert E. Lee. Their other statue is George Washington. He's pretty solid. I think he's going to stick around. I don't but think they, he's going anywhere. Yeah, I don't think he's going anywhere. Um, they have removed the statue of old Bobby Lee and are going to replace it. They just have not done so yet because I think the sculptor's not done. But who are they replacing it with, Becca? Barbara Johns. Yes, they are. Um, Barbara Johns, she's, a, a, you might know, a civil rights leader. Um, she's really sort of like, I would say, I'm trying to think of a good like analogy for this, but I can't come up with this. She's going to lead at the age of 16. She's a teenage protester against um, segregated laws. She's going to lead sort of these protests against these substandard conditions in her schools. So this like doctrine of separate but equal. She's like, we're not equal here. We're not getting equal resources. And she goes on to have a long life as a civil rights activist and advocate. This would eventually get folded into Brown versus the Board of Education, her particular case. So she's part of sort of that driving force towards Brown versus Board of Education. We also have Mary McLeod Bethune, who was just dedicated last summer from Florida. So she, she replaced an enslaver and a traitor. So that's good. Uh, Amelia Earhart from Kansas. Uh, she replaced William Jennings Bryan, which I'm a little sad about. He was not a traitor or an enslaver, just they wanted to switch it out. No disrespect. But I do think, as great as William Jennings Bryan is, I think having, you know, people in the capital from the 20th century isn't a bad idea. People that some people can connect to. I want to do something I almost never do, which is give a shout out to Arkansas. Arkansas is in the process of changing both of its state statues. Both of its current statues have are men that have very strong ties to the Confederacy, to enslavement. And so they have the state legislature already approved this. These statues are being made. One will be another civil rights figure, a young woman named Daisy Bates. And then the other is going to be someone you all definitely know. It's the man in black, Johnny Cash. So we have so few people represented from the arts. 
in this statuary collection. We very rarely include writers or painters or artists of any kind. So I'm kind of thrilled to see somebody who's not a politician, who's not, you know, necessarily an inventor. Um, I think that's cool. I think a little arts representation is awesome. Plus Johnny Cash is the coolest. And, you know, if you're gonna have somebody awesome from your state, Arkansas, good job. So I thought that was a nice balance. They went with, you know, someone representing the civil rights struggle in Arkansas, that's awesome. And then somebody kind of representing the artistic output of the South. I think that's neat. I love, I thought they were, I was being punked when I first read that it was gonna be Johnny Cash. I thought that that was like, <laughs> a, there's no way that's real, but it is, and it's gonna be really cool and exciting. Um, so I'm excited for both of those statues to make their appearance. And I just think that it's, you know, these are dynamic and interesting statues and the state only gets two, so it's really like an economy of scale. Like, how do you best judge? And of course, there's always going to be people who think that some other person is deserving of mention or more emphasis. And that's fine. Those are debates you can have in your legislature. But I guess my conclusion here is please send us fewer Confederates to Washington because it's hard and it, I don't, it's bad. It's a bad look, guys. It's bad. Um, and definitely, again, we'll put some links if you are curious um, to see who the statues are from your state. It's very easy to look them up online. Yeah, so Rebecca, if you were to swap out somebody from Connecticut, you'd do the first female governor of Connecticut? Yeah, Ella Grasso. I super duper would. Um, she was awesome. She In the first woman elected governor of a U.S. state in the 70s the 1970s. So this isn't like all that far back in our history. But I feel like particularly for the Northeast, like it's great to emphasize a lot of the founding fathers and that's fine and all well and good, but also you've had people do things in the last 200 years too, and they deserve some kind of notion. That's my thought. Our two statues from Texas are Sam Houston and Stephen F. Austin, both of whom I think kind of would check boxes for being of state significance with a little bit of national name recognition. However, particularly Stephen F. Austin's relationship to slavery is not ideal. Um, so I wouldn't mind seeing them both swapped out. I certainly wouldn't mind seeing, seeing Austin, but it's kind of a toss up for me. I think I'd either go with, I think Lady Bird Johnson, there's no first ladies represented in the statuary collection. And frankly, first ladies aren't well represented in art, many places outside the White House with their portraiture, even in the National Portrait Gallery, we don't have a full collection on display of First Ladies, or maybe Ann Richards. I think Ann Richards would be cool, or Barbara Jordan. Those would be kind of the three that anytime if someone asks me, like, who would I change one of the Texas statues to, those are kind of the three names I circle around as being, I think, a good balance if we were to keep Sam Houston. So you'd have kind of the 19th century and then the 20th century represented. But yeah, not a lot of First Ladies, so maybe Lady Bird Johnson. Also, I love I love Barbara Jordan. If you listen to our Barbara Jordan episode, you know how much we love her. But it's over. It's well long due over time, I think, for Texas to consider perhaps um, swapping out one of its statues. Yes, I agree. Um, so, yeah, that's our capital art and specifically statues episode and this is something we see and are very passionate about we see these statues a lot so uh, we want to know what you think as always we want to hear your thoughts about this episode or really any others if there are any if you look through the capital statue collection you think wow there's somebody interesting from my state i'd love to hear more about them let us know we'll work it into a future episode um and uh thank you as always for coming along with us and we'll be back in a couple of weeks with more fun stuff thank you Bye, guys.